Okay, my friends, it is time to get started. You know, I was troubled the other day. A friend of mine sent me an email that said his kid had been chewing on electrical cords. Said he had to ground him. Said that shocked his family, sparked some outrage, but currently he's conducting himself properly. <laughs> you know, why did the green pepper not practice archery? He didn't have an arrow. Oh no. Where does a horse live? In a neighborhood. I should have quit about three backs, you know, it's okay. It's okay. We're waiting to see if anybody else is going to come in. You might have seen this sticker because it made national news. The Cobb County, Georgia School Board had voted because they were elected officials to put this in the biology textbook in Cobb County, Georgia back in 2002. They placed the sticker in the book and here's what it said word for word. This textbook contains material on evolution. Evolution is a theory, not a fact, regarding the origin of living things. This material should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered. Now, if you're just asking me, Kyle, do you think that Christianity should be looked at with an open mind, studied carefully, and critically considered? I would say absolutely positively. In fact, I don't even have a problem whatsoever learning about how people teach evolution. I think it's good to know how evolution is taught. And one of the reasons I think it's good to know how evolution is taught is because I can take that idea and I can compare it to what really happens in the world and I can see if evolution is true. I believe that the statement that was written by Paul, test all things, hold fast to what is good, would apply to creation just exactly like it would apply to evolution. If there is an idea out there that's correct, I want to know it. And the way that you know it is you look at things with an open mind, you study them carefully, you critically consider them, and you come to a conclusion based on the evidence. Sadly, there are some people who say that's not how you should approach Christianity. They say, don't think about it too much. Your mom was a Christian. Your grandma was a Christian. Your granddad was a Christian. Just be a Christian because everybody else is. Are there some people that think and teach that? Yes. Are there some people that say, don't think about the Bible being the inspired word too much. Just believe it. Hey, don't question it. Just take it. There are some people that's not the biblical approach. Never has been shouldn't be your approach to anything in your life. You should look at everything with an open mind because, hey, we don't know everything right now, do we? And there might be some things that we might have thought that were incorrect, might be some things that we might have needed some expanding our knowledge on. Study it carefully. Don't just do it on the surface. Really look into it and critically, meaning, hey, if this were wrong, what would that look like? If it were right, what would it look like? I want to compare what I know about what's being said to what I know to be true and find the real answer. This is a great way to approach anything. 
It's a great way to approach Christianity. It's a great way to approach evolution. It's a great way to approach how you're going to vote. It's a great way to approach what you're going to do in any type of medical type situation. Great way to approach life. Now, this sticker did not stay in the biology textbooks at Cobb County very long because it was considered by the circuit court judge as unconstitutional because he said it violated the separation of church and state. And he said it violated the separation of church and state because it was too religious. <laughs> too religious. Okay, let's read it again. Maybe I missed something there. Not to be too sarcastic or facetious, but let's read it. Uh, this textbook contains material on evolution. Evolution is a theory, not a fact, regarding the origin of living things. This material should be approached with an open mind, studied carefully and critically considered. Okay, now the elected school board, people who are chosen by their peers to represent them in a county-type situation, voted to put this sticker in the textbooks. It was removed because it was claimed to be unconstitutional because it supposedly violated the separation of church and state, which is a complete misunderstanding of the separation of church and state which was never designed to say you can't say anything religious in the public sector, which there are any number of reasons why we know that. Number one is that the Congress has been opening with a prayer for over 100 years, and we've known that hasn't violated any separation of church and state. But all that aside, let's say that that was the case, and it's not. What about this is religious? Where's God? Where's Jesus? Where's the Bible? Where's anything religious? It's not there. But I'll tell you that there is a good reason why I would suggest that anybody who believes in evolution cannot leave this sticker in a biology textbook. If you believe evolution and you encourage a kid to openly, with an open mind, study evolution carefully, the evidence you're putting there, and critically consider it, that child if they take your advice, will never be an evolutionist. You do not believe in evolution because of the evidence. Now, that statement right there to many people is appalling to them. And they would say, no, you as a religious person, you're the one that doesn't believe in evidence. You're the one that has a blind faith in God. However, what I'd like to do is just suggest that if we were to take this mode of operation, if we just said, I'm going to look at this stuff with an open mind, I'm going to study it carefully, I'm going to critically consider it, what would happen? Now, we have gone through several textbooks and looked at the teachings of those books and then compared evolutionary teaching to those. And one of these ideas is just simply the law of biogenesis. Here's what it says. In this world, all life comes from previously existing life of its own kind. Really simple. If you have a dog and that dog has babies, here's what you know. Uh, you have a dog, maybe like Max, the dog that we had when I was a kid. And Max was moving with us from oh, far east Tennessee to middle Tennessee. And she was in the family way. She was about to have some babies. And we brought her out of the U-Haul, put her in the bathtub to have her babies that night we were moving. And sure enough, the next day, she had eight of the most beautiful baby hippopotamuses you have ever seen. Because you know that dogs sometimes have hippopotami. And that's, 
Well, no, you know that that doesn't happen. But now here's what's interesting. You weren't there. Why is it that you know that my dog gave birth to puppies and you had no connection to that whatsoever? Well, because every time you've seen a dog, it always gives birth to puppies. And you wouldn't believe that I had a dog that gave birth to baby hippopotamuses. Now, an evolutionist would say, hold on just a second. We, we've never said that a dog gives birth to baby hippopotamuses. What we say is that it changes slightly from a dog to, to something else or a change. Okay, you ever seen a, a dog give birth to 99% dog and one part bird, maybe with just one feather on top of its head? 99% dog, one part uh, lizard. A dizzard. They just got, they got a little scale on top of its head instead. But what we're saying is that in the real world, experimentally, in every, now listen to me, every single scientific experiment ever done in the biological circles, if you have a dog, it gives birth to baby puppies. Cats give birth to kittens. Cows give birth to never dogs, never half cows, something else, always calves. The law of biogenesis is something that wasn't understood in the past. In fact, people thought that life could spontaneously pop into existence from non-living chemicals and then change from one kind of creature to another because they thought that cells were very simple, thought that they were blobs of protoplasm that happened to not have much information in them at all and that you could basically mix it up with a little bit of jello and some salt and boom, you could get life. It wasn't a problem. In fact, people said, yeah, we see things pop into existence all the time. Spontaneous generation until the mid-1800s was what most everybody believed in, life coming into existence from non-living chemicals. They said, yeah, you want to prove it? Well, just take a steak and put it on your kitchen counter in the middle of the summer and leave your windows open, and it will spontaneously generate maggots. They just pop into existence from the chemical properties. Air and steak. In about 1600, a guy by the name of Francisco Reedy, 1660, he said, I don't think so. So he put a bunch of meat in the bottom of some flask, left them open, put a bunch of meat in the bottom of some flask, hermetically sealed them airtight. Flies landed on this meat, maggots formed. They couldn't land on this meat, no maggots. He said, I think maggots are coming from flies. They said, you are crazy. He said, your problem was you didn't let air get into this meat. Air has got the chemicals that cause life to form. He said, okay, let's try something else. So put it in jars that were totally sealed, put it in jars that were sealed with something like medical gauze, and then put it in jars that were unsealed. Maggots formed on the unsealed. Maggots formed on the medical gauze, but not the meat. Maggots didn't form on the sealed meat. He said, there you go. I let air come in, and maggots didn't form on the meat. They formed on the gauze. Had to be the flies. They said, yeah, I think you're right. They said, so you're saying life doesn't spontaneously pop into existence from non-living chemicals? He says, no, I think it does, just not maggots. That was believed for another 200 years until a man by the name of Louis Pasteur did some experiments that showed once and for all life comes from previously existing life of its own kind in this material universe. And the way he did that was he would take meat broth or hay broth and put it under a microscope because in the 1880s you could zoom in with a microscope and you could see millions of little swimming microscopic creatures. When you boiled it, it killed them all. Now, normally... If you boil water or meat broth or soup, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good because let's say you take some soup and you don't eat it all. It was boiling when you cooked it, but you leave it on your kitchen counter and come back in three days. You don't put it in the fridge. You just leave it sitting there. What are you going to do with that soup? Oh, this looks delicious. I think I'll have three-day-old soup that's been sitting on my kitchen counter. But you don't do that because why? There's stuff growing in it. 
But if you had a microscope and you zoomed in, you'd see all the bacteria, all the different kinds of salmonella and different bacteria that are growing in it. That's what was happening under normal conditions, but Louis Pasteur made a special S-shaped curve that went into his flask so that gravity pulled all the microscopic bacteria into the bottom of the S-shaped curve. So air got back into it. For all the people who said, you've got to have air. But there at the bottom of the S-shaped curve, it caught all the microscopic organisms, so nothing regrew in the flask. Some of them, he waited a week, and he'd break the neck off, boom, microscopic organism. Some of them, if I understand it right, he waited a year. No microscopic organisms formed. He, after the year, broke the neck, boom, air got right back in, microscopic organisms. Since that time, we have been benefiting from his process. If you drank any milk this morning, orange juice or any kind of natural juice, you went into, especially milk, let's take milk. Uh, you went into your refrigerator and you pulled out your milk. If you looked on the side, it said it was pasteurized. Well, you know why that is, because the cows that gave that milk lived in a... Don't say pasture. That's wrong. They did not live in a pasture. We don't know where they live, but it has nothing to do with being pasteurized. Pasteurized is, of course, from Louis Pasteur's name, and it's a process by which you heat up the liquid for about 30 seconds to 160 degrees, and it kills any microscopic organisms. We have been knowing that life doesn't spontaneously generate from non-living chemicals for hundreds of years, and we've known that once you have life, it gives birth to only the kind of life that it is. Dogs always have puppies. Cats always have kittens. We know that. But did you know that according to the atheistic evolutionary model, you had to have life pop into existence from non-living chemicals? I'm going to repeat it, and I want you to let it sink in. From an atheistic evolutionary model, you had to have life pop into existence from non-living chemicals. And yet every experiment ever done in the biological sciences ever, and I can repeat the word ever 30 million times if it will do you any good, all of them have shown that you do not get life from non-existing chemicals. It is not a possibility. It is scientifically disproven. And yet according to... Atheistic evolution, you have to get life to pop into existence from non-living chemicals. And then you have to get that life to change from one kind of life to another kind. And not once, not twice, not three times, but multiplied millions of times. You have to get new genetic information added on the scale of billions of bits of information. You know, and here's the problem with that. We can study animals right now, and we can see they're not changing into other kinds of animals. Now, the evolutionist community is going to say, yeah, well, you've got some genetic mutation that's doing this and that. Yeah, you do. That's losing information. But here's what I find so interesting. They decided that they were going to, oh, they were going to try to treat the fruit fly in terrible, horrible ways. And they have since 1900. They've decided, okay, we've got this creature that every 14 days will give you a new generation. And because of that, we could compress millions of years, and put in quotations, of evolution into experiments using this fruit fly. And so here's what they started doing. Zapping the fruit fly with radiation to cause genetic mutation to see if they can change it into something else. And here's what they've done. Man, they've got a fruit fly that will grow legs on its head. They've got a fruit fly that will grow wings where its legs were supposed to be. 
They've got a fruit fly that they can grow a couple heads on it and several more legs than it was supposed to have, several fewer legs than it was supposed to have. They can grow some with bristles, some without bristles. They've been zapping fruit flies for over 120 years with every type of radiation they can to get them to genetically mutate, and they have. Do you know what you still have? It's still a fruit fly. Hadn't changed from one kind of fruit fly to another. Hasn't altered from a mouth to a beak. What we find is we are being sold a bill of goods in that idea of evolution. Because here's what you read in the textbooks about evolution. They will say evolution is change over time. Do things change over time? Oh, absolutely positive. Do you see that right there? That was not always there. That used to be covered, and now it's not because things change over time. You don't look like you looked when you were 18. Have you changed over time? Okay, so we're told things change over time, and that's something everybody has to admit. Do things change over time? Absolutely, positively. But then, on the other hand, we're told evolution is where you can take a single-cell organism and add genetic information to the point that it will eventually give birth to every organism in the world, including all the way up to humans. Okay, so you got one definition, evolution change over time. One definition, evolution is where you get a single-celled organism all the way up to a human. And they say, do you believe in evolution? Change over time? Yes. Okay, so you believe that you can get one single cell all the way up to a human. No, I didn't say that. Well, you said you believe in evolution. You know, it's called equivocation. It's something that's done in logical circles on a regular basis. It's a logical fallacy. It's when you put in a definition that is agreed upon, and then when you want to change that definition, you put in a new definition, but act like the person's already agreed on the one that you have discussed. You say, well, that's kind of dishonest. It is. Let's see how it works. If I were to ask you this question, what's stronger than God? What has more power than God? You would say, nothing. And I were to then ask you, what am I holding in my hand here? Nothing. So what I'm holding in my hand is stronger than God. Well, deep down, you know something's wrong with that, don't you? What's stronger than God? Nothing. I'm holding nothing in my hand, so what's in my hand is stronger than God. You know there's something going on. That, that's, a, that's a verbal sleight of hand. Because what people are going to say is, okay, do things change over time? Can we get a fruit fly to grow a wing on its head? Yes. And here's why. Because there's a little thing in its DNA that says grow a wing, and we zap it with radiation, and that thing flips over to where the leg part was, and you didn't add any new information. You just scrambled it up. And now you grow a wing where its leg or antenna was supposed to grow because you messed up the genetic code of the fruit fly. But you never get any new information that says, now change your mouth into a beak. Or uh, get it to change to such a degree that, okay, now one of those bristles has turned into a feather. You don't get that. Because, see, here's what you understand about change over time. Change has limits as it relates to biology. Dogs are always going to give birth to puppies. Now, sometimes they're going to look different from their mom or dad. Sometimes they're going to be bigger or smaller. They're going to have more fur or less fur. They're going to be darker or lighter. But eventually, all genetic change runs into a barrier that you don't change from the dog kind to the horse kind. Easy to understand in this little illustration. Suppose, 
uh, like my wife and I, you decided, this was years ago, years ago, we decided we were going to run a half marathon. Now, run is a generous term for what we would do. It's probably not a run, not a run. But we were going to be involved in one. And so the first evening, we went out and we gave it everything we had. We ran for all we had, and it was about eight minutes and about half a mile. That's how we started. Eight minutes and a half a mile. And at the end of it, we were just like, okay. And you know when you're running, you feel like eight minutes is about an hour and a half. And you feel like you've gone 12 miles. And so we're like, oh, it's half a mile, eight minutes. Okay. So, well, we worked from there. Now, let's say, hypothetically, you were going to start running a mile. And the first time you started running it, you did as good as you could. You did your very best. And you ran it in 11 minutes. Okay. Now, you trained for a week. And the next week, you tried it and you ran it in 10. Okay, change over time. We've now changed from 11 to 10. And the next week, you practiced and trained, and you did it in nine. Okay, great. Okay, now we've got a pattern here. In 11 weeks, how long is it going to take you to run a mile? No minutes. It's exciting. You're trimming one down every single week of training, and if you started at 11 and you've trimmed one down in three weeks, in 11 weeks, you're going to run a mile in no minutes, and you're going to be the awesomest runner in the history of the universe. Except if it's anything like where we were. You know, we started training, and we trimmed off about three seconds. And eventually, we got down to nine minutes and 51 seconds for our mile. And that was as far as we were going. There was no more altering that. You know what we find in genetics is, yeah, there's some built-in variation in the kinds but it always comes to a screeching halt at some point and you don't change a fruit fly back into a bacteria or something more than a fruit fly. It stays a fruit fly. And how many scientific writings have you read where it says, hey, we've been zapping the, the DNA of fruit flies for the last 120 years. It's the equivalent of multiple years, multiple millions of years of evolution. We've never got it to change into anything other than a fruit fly. And so we're probably wrong about that. Yeah, there's some change over time, but there's a barrier and you can't get a single-celled organism all the way up to a human because we can't get a fruit fly into anything other than a fruit fly. You ever heard anything like that? No, you haven't ever heard anything like that because what you've heard is change over time. Do fruit flies change? Can we get a wing on its head? Yeah. Well, so that means eventually if we had enough time, we could get it to change into a snout that had teeth. Except, hold on, you still got fruit flies, and why is it that you can, that you can select for whatever genetic modification you've tried to get and you still just have a fruit fly? Well, because things multiply after their own kinds. Now, I think it's very interesting that when you read Genesis chapter 1, some people try to shove evolution into the Bible, and we're going to show that's not possible. But in the first chapter of Genesis, you read that God created all the flowers, the grass, and trees on day 3, and he said, be fruitful and multiply after your own kind. And he said to the land-living creatures, be fruitful and multiply after your own kind. And some people have said, well, God just used evolution. No, he didn't. Because he created each individual kind and told them to multiply after their own kind. Meaning dogs have puppies, cats have kittens, cows have calves, and fruit flies are always fruit flies. They don't change into crows. And they don't degenerate back into bacteria. And so you've got that law of biogenesis. Now, here's an example of something that historically has been used. And now I say historically because this was back in 1989. But this story has been told so often, and I think it's such a really good example of how 
change over time is then altered to a single-celled organism to humans. And here's the story. Okay, you've got this fruit, I mean this uh, English peppered moth, and it's sitting on this tree trunk here. And if you were a bird, which one of these two English peppered moths would you eat? Well, you don't eat stuff you can't see. And so as a bird, you would come to this English peppered moth tree trunk and you would see, oh, the dark one. And so as a bird, you would eat the dark one because you could see it. And we are told correctly. And what I mean by that is we're not arguing with the actual facts here. We're arguing with the interpretation, the evolutionary interpretation on the facts. Because then we're told, okay, early on before the Industrial Revolution, the population density was 95% light colored and 5% dark colored. Now, I don't normally ask for a show of hands, but generally speaking, I have a number of scores of people who studied these types of things in their science biology textbooks when they were young people. And they come up to me afterward and say, oh, yeah, we've been looking at that in our textbook. In fact, after one of these lectures, I think it was about 2010, had one young freshman lady write me an email and say, hey, those things that you talked about, we just studied those two weeks after you were here in Swartz Creek, Michigan. So as you look at this, we're told that, okay, the birds are eating the dark colored, and that's why they're 5% dark. And then we are told that this is evolution in action, okay? Because after the Industrial Revolution, when the soot killed the lichens on the trees, then the dark-colored one was much better camouflaged. The light-colored one was much more visible. And so the population density changed from 95% light to 95% dark, 5% dark to 5% light. And we are told that is evolution in action. Is that change over time? Sure. Did those things change? Yeah. Did the moth change into anything other than the moth? You know what I think is so devious about this example of evolution in action? is that before the Industrial Revolution, you had the genetic information for two varieties of moth. What were they? Light and dark. After the Industrial Revolution, you had the genetic information for two varieties of moth. What were they? Light and dark. I mean, what changed there? Only the ratio of the percentage of which one was more populous. That would be like saying, and I think this is ridiculous, but it would be the equivalent of, let's say I had a dog, and that dog had ten puppies. And six of those puppies were light-colored, and four of those puppies were dark-colored. And that puppy lived up north, and the pond was frozen, but it was only thinly frozen over. And so the dog was walking across, and in a tragic puppy accident, five of the light-colored puppies were lost. And now we have four dark-colored and one light-colored evolution. Change over time. Well, nobody would think that that would be an example of change over time. And what I just did was change the population from, what, 60% light and 40% dark to now we have five individuals and four of them are dark and one is light. So now it's 80% dark and 1% light. Did I do anything to the genetic amount of information in the puppy population? Didn't change it at all. Just changed the numbers. You know, what else I find very interesting about that, not only is this not real evolution in action, but you ever tried to take pictures of your kids for Easter when they were little holding ducks? Maybe not. Maybe not. But I decided I was going to buy some ducks at Tractor Supply Company, the little yellow ones for Easter. They'll only sell them to you. You've got to buy at least two. I just wanted to buy one, but 
I, I bought two and gave them to, I think I had a three-year-old, a six-year-old, and a seven-and-a-half-year-old at the time and thought, okay, we're going to have Easter pictures with the ducks. You know, ducks don't understand Easter pictures. And three-year-olds don't either, just incidentally. And so getting the ducks and the kids lined up for a picture was real difficult. Thank you, Kyle. What does that have to do with evolution at all? You ever tried to line up English peppered moth? I mean, how do you train an English peppered moth to get on a tree trunk? You know, isn't it convenient that they happen to be right next to each other? on the different types of tree trunks in the vertical position so that it'll fit in the textbook grade. <laughs> well, now that is remarkable. And so when you look at that, you ask yourself, is that how English pepper moths really behave? Really? And what you find out is, no, that's not how they really behave. That this guy, Bob Ritter, who knew the moth pictures were fake, but use them anyway. Well, I mean, you've got to look at the audience. How convoluted do you want to make it for a first-time learner? He said, okay, yeah, those aren't real pictures. You can't really even get... In fact, English pepper moths, as far as we know, generally speaking, don't even land on tree trunks. A lot of times they land on the underside of leaves. A lot of times they, they fly at night, and that dark and light color have nothing whatsoever to do with blending in the green leaves. He said, yeah, but I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to confuse the kids. He says, uh, the advantage of this example of natural selection is that it's extremely visual. You can see it real well. I mean, I know the pictures are fake, but you can really see it good. Uh, we want to get across the idea of selective adaptation. Later on, they can look at it more. Okay, now stop right there. Later on, they can look at it more what? We don't want the kid to ask how an English peppered moth lands on a tree trunk right next to its buddy. We don't want the kids to critically consider what new genetic information was added to the English peppered moth population. We don't want them to think about it. Now, later on, they can. Okay. When is later on? You ever seen a class in college that says, all the stuff that you were told teaches evolution, that doesn't, 101. Where do they get a later on, hey, we told you this taught evolution, it doesn't. We told you this taught evolution, it doesn't. We, where and when is later on? You know, tragically, later on happens to be in a seminar like this. And that's the only later on most people see. And if that young lady at Swartz Creek, Michigan had not been in our seminar, two weeks later she would have marched into her biology class and she would have been fed this stuff about the English pepper moth and she wouldn't have known any better and she would have probably bought it hook, line, and sinker. Because later on, listen to me, is never. And there's a reason why evolution cannot stomach a sticker that says, let your kids look at this stuff with an open mind and study it carefully and critically consider it. Because if they did, and they started saying, okay, what new genetic information was added to the English pepper moth? Well, none, but it shows change over time. Okay, what change? Did it change from a moth to anything else? No, but you start getting a kid that really is looking at this. And they realize, hold on, that doesn't prove a thing about a single-celled organism changing into a human over millions of years. All that proves is you can get a population that had a few light and a few dark and change the ratio. And that doesn't mean anything about getting a pepper moth to be anything else. And yet, this was supposed to be an example of change over time, evolution in action. Now you've got this guy, Ernst Haeckel. In 1860, he read in German 
the translation of On the Origin of Species by Natural Selection that Charles Darwin put out in 1859 and thought, wow, this is amazing, and I'm going to prove it once and for all. And so he came up with this idea called the law of embryology. And he said, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. You just feel smarter after you hear that, don't you? Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. In fact, it could almost make you go to sleep if you heard it enough times. Ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. What in the world does ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny mean? It was the law of embryology. Made it up. He said the ontogeny, the growth of an organism in utero recaps, goes back through its phylogeny, its evolutionary history. So he said, you zoom in on a creature, and let's say it's going to be a human. Well, it goes through a fish stage, it goes through a reptile stage, it goes through a lower mammal stage, it goes through a monkey stage, and eventually ends up as a human. It recaps all its evolutionary history, goes through it all. And they said, okay, well, how can you prove this? He said, well, look, every bit of it starts out, every, this is a turtle, this is a, I think that's a chicken a pig, a dog, a human. He said, look, they all start with gill slits. They all go through a fish stage, and then they go through this lower mammal-type stage, and then they get all the way up to human. Well, even his buddies at the time, even, even people that were studying this stuff in 1880, they said, uh, hold on just a second, Hagel. They said, your salamander doesn't look like our salamander that we see in the real world. Your fish doesn't look like our fish. Look at the beautiful little gill slits of this fish, and then look at this fish. He said, that doesn't look a thing like what we're seeing actually in utero. He said, ah, yeah, that's if I understand it right, he says, it's because I've drew some of them from memory. Oh. That's good. And then he says, oh, and some of them I would draw the same one and just label it three different things. I would draw a fish and label a dog a fish and human. Because it makes the point so well. That... The organism re-goes through its evolutionary history. Okay, that was in 1880. Literally, by the end of 1880, 1890s, we knew this was false. Knew it. Been false from the day it was stated, and we knew it was false since the 1880s. Now, if you're getting to look at this material with an open mind, you're studying it carefully, you're critically considering it, you never put something that you've known is false since 1885 or 1890 in a textbook that attempts to prove evolution to be a fact. You just don't do it because anybody that's looking at it critically would assess it and realize that wouldn't fit. You have to get rid of that. And yet. And yet, no, they didn't get rid of it. In fact, they used it. They didn't use it for a few decades. They used it for over a century. Some people still do use it. Now, this is a, an article titled Atrocious, Haeckel's Distortions Didn't Help Darwin by Stephen Jay Gould, who himself was... Um, a very outspoken evolutionist. He said, Haeckel remains most famous today as the chief architect and propagandist for a famous argument that science disproved long ago. He says, We should therefore not be surprised that Haeckel's drawings entered 19th century textbooks, 1800s, but we do, I think, have the right to be both astonished and ashamed of mindless recycling for a century that's led to the persistence of these drawings in a large number, if not the majority, of modern textbooks. Now, hold on just a second. If you've told the kids don't look at it with an open mind or study it carefully or critically consider it, what are you asking them to do? Mindlessly 
recycle what you say. Why in the world do you think you have the right to be astonished and ashamed after you have made it illegal to put a statement in that says, look at this stuff with an open mind and study it carefully and critically consider it. Now I'm here to tell you, this approach to science is anti-scientific. It brings to a halt the real pursuit of knowledge. And that is you should look at everything with an open mind, study it carefully, critically consider it. Continue with me. This is the girl from Swartz Creek that wrote, and she said, hey, you know, you were there, and it was very good, very interesting. This week in my biology class, we learned about the theory of evolution. During this segment, we had to do worksheets. Two of the main things we did were on the peppered moss and similarity in embryos. Those were two things you proved false during your sermon. You taught us that these were proven false, but still in textbooks. Folks, that was 2010. We've known Haeckel's law of embryology was wrong for now 130 years. And yet, century of mindless recycling. Because your young people are told, don't look at this with an open mind and study it carefully and critically consider it. You ever seen this right here? Horse evolution? You know, this right here was in most textbooks proving evolution for years. And here's what we were told. We have evidence that puts this little bitty creature, why in the world we even associate it with horses, there's no reason other than, hey, it's a lot smaller than this and we're going to just say it was in line to modern equus. Maybe it's got some similar bone structures or whatever, but we're going to put this, and boy, it evolved up into mesohippus and myochippus and merichippus and all the way up to modern equus. Modern horse. That was paraded across, I'm talking museum exhibits and books and since the 50s, the uniform continuous transformation of hierarchitherium into equus so dear to the hearts of generations of textbook writers never happened in nature. They didn't evolve like that. Now, here's what's interesting to me. As this stuff has come to light, the evolutionary community has had to backtrack and say, okay, well, we're not saying they didn't evolve. We're just saying they didn't evolve like that. That what we thought this one evolved into this, not really because they both lived at the same time. So we know they evolved. They just didn't evolve like that. And yet, for... Six decades, that picture was in most textbooks and used to prove evolution. Now, here's where you get down to, okay, the evidence for proof of evolution is that stuff looks similar. And that proves that a single-celled organism came all the way into humanity over multiplied millions of years because stuff looks similar, homology. And we're told that if you look at the wrist bone of a human, the wrist ankle bone of a cat, the wrist of a whale and of a bat, these are all similar bone structures. So that means the human must have come from a similar ancestor to the bat. And this is evidence that evolution occurred. Because, hey, if you look at some people that a man will have a son, his wife will have a son, and that son will look very much like the man, well, what does that prove? It proves they're related because they look similar. Okay? Sometimes similarity does prove ancestry, but sometimes you can find two people that look almost identical, and they're not closely related at all, 
Is there an explanation from a creation standpoint that would respond to this? Hey, stuff looks similar, so it had to be evolutionary ancestral? Sure, really. You know, you walk out into the parking lot and you see most every vehicle out there has got four wheels. Most of them all are rubber, tires. You know why? That's because they're related. No, it's not. It's because you're driving on the same roads. The engines, a lot of them are made out of the same materials. Now, there's some different configurations of what liter your engine is, and you might even have a Tesla out there that's actually electric and not gas. But why in the world do all the vehicles have four wheels, most all of them? Of course, you might have a motorbike that has two, etc. And they have rubber tires, and they run on gasoline. And they... Is there a good reason why similarity might be seen in the physical universe? Absolutely, positively. Why? If you have a common designer, and that designer finds that lungs work really well for the atmospheric oxygen that you have, wouldn't you see that common designer using the idea of lungs in multiple different creatures? What if they're all going to eat similar kinds of food? What if they're going to move in similar environments? Wouldn't you find that a common designer would make just as much, if not more, sense than a common ancestor? Absolutely. And so notice, you're not arguing about the facts. Does everybody here agree that those bone structures look similar? Absolutely, positively. Do we differ, differentiate in, okay, that proves that you can get a single-celled organism that will go all the way to a human? Yes. Now, that's where we have a problem. Because similarity proves nothing of the sort. In fact, it proves common designer as much as it proves common ancestry or more. The fact of the matter is that every single one of us should be willing to look at any belief we have with an open mind and study it carefully and critically consider it. Now, I am going to tell you if and when that happens. I have a friend right now. He has a PhD from MIT. He is a project manager at NASA and just received the highest award that NASA can grant to any of its employees. He grew up as an atheist, learning evolution, was taught all of this stuff that you see. At one point in his life, he said to himself, you know, I'm not sure this is true, I'm going to check it out. And so started studying this evidence for evolution with an open mind, looked at it carefully and critically considered it, and realized what he had been taught was not what reflected the actual evidence. As he continued to study, realized that the explanation of a supernatural, all-powerful God made much better sense, studied himself into belief in a God, then decided, okay, what does this God want from me? started trying to find the truth of what his creator wanted from him, started studying the Bible, studied himself into New Testament Christianity, became a Christian, and has now been an active teacher of the truth with a Ph.D. from MIT, having studied himself out of atheism into the Lord's church. And I am absolutely convinced that anybody with an open, sincere heart 
who decides, I am going to look at this information with an open mind and study it carefully and critically consider it, will eventually become a Christian. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ brought grace and truth to light in the gospel. And the truth that you see in the Bible and the truth that you see in the physical world will never contradict. And these two ideas, when looked at correctly, will always complement each other. All right. Another good lesson. So glad that you are here. You have blessed me with such good attention to this material. We are now going to take a 15-minute break, I am told, until 3, we're going to say 3.30, 3-ish, 30-ish, 3.25, 3.30. Some of you are kind of slackers. You got in here about five minutes late. You missed some of my best jokes. And I mean, that's on y'all. It's on you. So if you want to miss some jokes, get in here at 3.30. If you want to get them all, 3.25. And we'll see you in about 15 minutes.